Shabbat Shalom. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the Hava River so that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from him a straight way for us, our little ones and all of our possessions. For I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and cavalry to protect us from the enemy along the way because we had spoken to the king saying, the gracious hand of our God is upon everyone who seeks him but his great anger is against everyone who forsakes him. So we fasted and sought our God about this, and he responded to our plea. Then I set apart 12 of the leading Kohanim, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and with them 10 of their brothers. And I weighed out for them the silver, the gold, and the utensils, the contribution to the house of our God, that the king, his counselors, his officials, and all Israel who were present had offered. Thank you, Judy. For some of us, Purim has some very profound and special memories, um, especially for some of us who go back into the previous century Glad somebody likes my humor. <laughs> I remember looking at pictures of uh, my sister and I uh, dressed up for Purim. And uh, my sister was dressed as a Dutch girl, you know, complete with the wooden shoes and the bonnet. And yours truly was dressed as a cowboy. You know, with the six-shooter, and uh, I was truly very, um, very scary. Um, thank you. And uh, this was part of the uh, fun during uh, Purim season in Israel. Um, in, in fact, things... In Israel and also some of the Orthodox communities, um, frankly, go over the top. There was a Mardi Gras-ish um, celebration or procession um, called Adloyada, uh, which means uh, he does not know, i.e. that you get so uh, filled with fire water that you cannot tell the difference between when to boo for Haman and when for, to cheer for Mordechai, Adloyada. Uh, and as you might imagine, like everything in, in rabbinic literature, there's some who, uh, who say on one hand and others say on the other hand. So on one hand, there are rabbis who say, yes, it's a good thing, you know, like the old saw, uh, the old shtick of they try to kill us, God wouldn't let them, now let's eat. Yeah. Uh, and then there are other rabbis who say, no, you know, you need to be more uh, respectful, more somber, and so on and so forth. Uh, because this is truly, uh, when you read the Esther story, you realize that it was truly grim, a very, very scary time for the people of Israel. 
Um, in fact, Israel came a hair away from another holocaust. If you read the book of Esther carefully, you will, you will notice the fact that um, Haman had things so worked out that if it weren't for the power of God intervening in what seemed to be um, a coincidence. In fact, in the book of Esther, what you'll find is that a lot of things seem to turn on coincidences. But remember that in God's way of doing things, there are no such things as, as coincidences. There are to us, but remember that the Almighty is at work at all times, invisibly, and at some point, he pulls back the curtains and enables us to see what's going on. Um, so Purim for us is both and, both a time to celebrate um, the fact that we're, we as a people, Jewish people, are around uh, despite everything that has taken place. Uh, but it's also fairly somber in some, some other instance, in some other aspects of it. Uh, if you have read carefully the book of Esther, you know that Haman's uh, pedigree uh, ostensibly goes back to uh, Agag, who was the king of Amalek, uh, long-standing history of hatred towards Israel. Oddly enough, uh, in 1942, Hitler was made, Hitler was quoted as saying that if the Third Reich would be defeated, that the Jews would have another Purim. Um, I don't know the entire context for that, but uh, I've heard enough stories to validate the basic essence of that. Um, so, Purim and the story of Esther um, was a time when God communicated to the people of Israel that even in the land of their enemies, he is around. And if you go back to the Torah, particularly to Leviticus chapter 26, exile was one of the last steps in God's judgment on, on the people of Israel. And basically the message was, if you don't take me seriously, I will punish you. And if you still don't take me seriously, I will punish you seven times. And then at some point I'll have to throw you out of the land. And when you are in the land, when you are out of the land, you'll be fair game uh, to your enemies because you will have lost some of the protection that you have when you are in the land. Um, and yet, somehow, God's covenant with the nation of Israel stands regardless of how faithful the people were. God is faithful. And that's sanity saver I would like to think, it, uh, certainly for me and I hope for the rest of us, that regardless of how faithful we are to God, that He is faithful to us. 
And um, Purim finds us in, in the land of the enemies um, as the passage from Ezra. Uh, the book of Ezra and the book of Esther are fairly close together, um, 30, 40 years, something like that. Um, Esther was earlier, and um, Ezra was a bit later, and then just somewhat uh, 13 years or so after Ezra was Nehemiah, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But if I were to ask you a question, what do you know about Ezra? I suspect that most of us might be able to fill a paragraph or less about Ezra um, because Scripture doesn't tell us a lot. We don't have chapters upon chapters. However, uh, as you learn to read the text carefully, there are a bunch of very, very strong statements that give us a picture of the character of this man. Incredible men of God. Um, although in traditional Judaism, Ezra, who was, by the way, both a scribe and, and a Kohen, a, a, a priest, um, was known as the one who initiated the great assembly, uh, which eventually uh, morphed into the Sanhedrin, which was the uh, religious supreme court of the land. So according to tradition, rabbinic tradition, Ezra was one of the uh, wise uh, leaders in the land uh, who began the process of forming um, halakha, rabbinic law, based on, on what the Torah tells us. Um, like any, anything in tradition, um, you can stand on parts of it, other parts of it you say, God knows. Um, my preference is to park on what Scripture tells us, and there's enough. Um, I want to take your, draw your attention to chapter 7 of Ezra, uh, chapter before what was read to us in verse 6. where we see that Ezra came from Babylon. And by the way, Babylon at that point was under um, Persian, the Persian Empire. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses and the Torah, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Now, what does it mean that he was well-versed? The Hebrew word, by the way, means he was, he was quick. Uh, not just quick in terms of being sharp mentally, but he was quick in that he knew Scripture well enough to be able to access it and use it as, as the need arose. You know, unfortunately, sometimes I look at folks and I talk about Scripture and they, I hope I'm not stepping on too many toes here, but they have to go back to the table of contents to find out where things are in the good book. Um, that's not being quick um, about knowing Scripture because you have to read it, you have to study it, you have to meditate on it, you have to apply it enough 
to where you know where things are. You have a basic knowledge and understanding of uh, the map of Scripture, where things are positioned, and you understand God's plan and how God evolved or how God's strategy uh, unfolded. So Ezra, in, if you go down a couple of verses in verse 10, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the Torah, the Torah of the Lord, teaching his decrees and laws in Israel. Um, you have three verbs here, three action words. First of all, um, he has devoted himself to study, and it's not just sitting with the book, um, flipping through the book, but rather um, intense, intensely studying Scripture. The word that's used there, you might have heard the word midrash. Um, that's that's where midrash comes from, lidrosh, to seek and 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 uh, study. The second action word was to do. And traditional Judaism uh, states that uh, studying the Torah is is a uh, a benefit in and of itself. Uh, and my response to that is yes and no. Uh, we can never study Scripture just for its own sake, just for the sake of acquiring knowledge, uh, because it has to be put into practice. Uh, James, the just Yaakov HaTzadik, put it very, very bluntly. A person who does not apply Scripture is like a person looking in the mirror in his face and seeing major amounts of schmutz on his face and then walks away and said, hmm, that was very interesting. <laughs> uh, not what you're supposed to do with the Word of God. Um, Israel was commanded by God to carefully apply and and keep the word of God. To guard, to do. And Ezra is committed to doing that. Um, but it didn't stay just with himself. He was committed to teaching the people uh, the word of God. And I want to pull back here for a moment. And make what I hope is an obvious application and that is, if you and I study Scripture with some degree of intensity, you know, we're serious about it, we're not playing games, um, then what will happen is that we will be provoked to apply it, to put it into practice in our life. Can't, you cannot read Scripture over and over and over again without the light bulb going off in your mind and God saying to you, okay, do you get it? This is what I expect you to do. And thirdly, if we study the Word of God and, and embrace it and apply it, can it stay merely within ourselves? It will somehow find its way out. Remember what Yeshua said in Matthew 12, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. In other words, what's in here, in one form or another, will come out. Either good stuff or, or garbage. 
hopefully not garbage. Um, and that's true. That was true of Ezra. It's true of us. Um, what I found intriguing is that somehow who Ezra was didn't just stay with Ezra and the Jewish community. Somehow who Ezra was uh, was known at the highest level of the Persian Empire. Um, if you were to read uh, the rest of chapter 7, you will see that there was a letter sent from the, from the king Artaxerxes um, who had found, who had somehow learned about um, Ezra and who Ezra was and uh, gave him the authority to go to Jerusalem and to strengthen the worship of God in the temple and teach the people. Now, there are obviously lots of things that um, are not given to us by way of details, um, but remember that above the earthly king, there's the heavenly king. And the point really is not about Ezra or any of us humans. The point is about God, what God wants. And God has a way of finding, of, of doing things so that what he wants comes to the surface, come to the forefront. The king authorizes Ezra to seek uh, and get all the help he needs. By the way, in case you wonder, uh, we're not talking about some lice, light trip, um, you know, where you, where you go hiking for a day or two. Uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem directly was 500 miles or so. Um, people never did that because you would have to go through a desert. So people went along the Euphrates, which ended up uh, causing you to travel 900 miles, uh, much of it which, maybe all of which was by foot. So you can understand that it took four months for Ezra and the entire bunch of people that came with him, the, the old people, the young people, the Levites, the priests, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and this was not light traveling. Somewhere along the 900 miles, there was a very strong likelihood that somebody would pop out from the bushes with their um, 5th century BCE equivalent of, of a gun and would hold you up. Now, if you read the text carefully, you'll see that they were traveling with several tons of silver and several tons of gold. I suspect that somehow word would have gotten out to all these scoundrels along the way. Um, and coming back to the king, what I found intriguing is that he describes himself in this letter as the king of kings. Uh, did he have an ego issue? Yes. 
but that was fairly typical for the Persian kings to describe themselves as king of kings. Why? Because they had mastery over a bunch of little kings. However, Artaxerxes says in this letter in chapter 7, verse 23, whatever the God of heaven had described, let it be done with diligence for the temple of God in the temple of God in heaven. And here he gives a, a totally altruistic reason. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? In other words, um, he realizes somehow, don't ask me how, he realizes somehow that the God of Israel is really much more than the local God, someone who's got power to control Israel, Babylon, Persia, and everybody else. And as a king, he gets the fact that you either do what the king wants or else you get into some serious trouble, which he doesn't want. So, um, Artaxerxes gives him everything he needs. Um, all kinds of resources from the royal treasury. He gives him authority to ask and receive uh, the resources that he needs when they go on this trip from the governors of, of the area. And uh, he also, just for good measure, tells uh, Ezra that uh, in case some of the people are being scofflaws, you know, uh, not his own people not willing to cooperate, that they would have to give an answer to Artaxerxes. So Ezra has all of that. But in chapter 8, we see that he has the good sense, which unfortunately we don't always, to pause before a major endeavor and say, we're going to seek God and we're going to pray. Now, by the way, folks, we tend to be uh, sort of both end. You know, uh, we're going to cover our bases and we're going to pray. You know, just for good measure, we're going to pray. Right? But first of all, we're going to do, uh, uh, do the good measure, taking care of business. You don't see that with, with Ezra. Before they set foot and proceed on this arduous trip, they spend time seeking God in prayer and fasting. And that was a purpose for it. Verse 22 of chapter 8 here. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road. Because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone but his great anger is against all who's, who forsake him. I don't know where you are, but I see this as an incredibly gutsy kind of a perspective. You know, again, we think of Ezra as a scholar, as a scribe, and so on and so forth. This, to me, reflects a man of God who is incredibly courageous. Um... If we're in a position to get some help from high up, would, would, would we say, uh, Governor, thank you, but um, I worship the kind of God that is going to take care of me and I would really be okay. Can you see yourself doing that? 
Well, if we were to ask for a show of hands, I would imagine that there would be a very small number of folks saying yes to that. Um, because Ezra knew and understood something about who his God was. Again, think, think about the situation. You're, you're traveling 900 miles with tons of gold, tons of silver. You have people of all kinds, men, women, children, old folks. You're basically fair game to anybody who wants to do anything that they want to. And yet, Ezra says, no. I'm going to depend on God. Now, that's guts, folks. That's holy chutzpah. Um, and this phrase, the gracious hand of our God, Yad HaTovah, is something that you see in Ezra over and over and over and over again, six times. Um, let, me just bear, let me just rattle through a number of those just to show you what I'm talking about. Verse 6, the king had granted Ezra everything he had asked. Why? Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Verse 9, uh, they began, he began the journey from Babylon. The first day of the first month arrived in Jerusalem on first day of the fifth month. Why? Because the gracious hand of God was upon him. Verse 28 of this chapter. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took carriage and took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. What sustained Ezra was the fact that he knew the presence of God. He knew the Lord was with him, not in some loose and casual way, but the Lord was with him in providing what he needed to do. And then at the end of chapter 8 here, Verse 31, on the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us, and he protected us from our enemies and bandits along the way. Somehow, God managed. You know, we often have such a paltry view of who God is. We often assume that God will only do and help us after we have done our business. And by the way, the, the, the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, um, if you search hard, you will not find it in, in the good book. It comes from one of the French philosophers named Rabelais. Now, this, this is not to suggest that you sit there and you think deep thoughts and you wait for God to uh, zap and, and make things happen. Um, Ezra was a man of action. However, he understood that without God's previous action, he could do absolutely nothing. Like Yeshua tells us, 
without me, you can do absolutely nothing. That's hard on ego, isn't it? Because you like to think, okay, God, I'm going to work hard and huff and puff, and you're going to fill in the rest of the blanks. doesn't say much for God, does it? It means that he has to depend on us doing everything so that he doesn't, do, doesn't have to do a whole lot. So Ezra and the people there fasted and humbled themselves before God. Obviously, this has to do with the um, same phrase that we find in, in Leviticus 23 when it speaks about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that God said to Israel, you are to afflict your souls. That doesn't mean that you are to be masochistic. Um, but it simply means that you will set the normal things aside in order to focus on God. Because if you notice, the focus in... In this verse here in, in Ezra 22, 8.22, is not just um, deny yourself and, and be, uh, show yourself how disciplined you are, but rather it was fast and pray and humble yourself before God. God has to be part of the picture. In fact, God has to fill the screen there. And that's what they did, and God answered their prayer. Now, sometimes in, in Hebrew, you have these little words that have so much meaning packed into them. This is one of those words. The Hebrew word for answer here um, is pretty unusual, ye'ater. In fact, it's kind of a back and forth you appeal to God, and God allows himself to be appealed to. And, and you have a couple of examples of that. One, of course, is Isaac uh, praying for his wife for 20 years. Gentlemen, think about that. He prayed for his wife for 20 years because she was barren, and he pleaded with God, and God allowed himself to be to be persuaded. You have a similar example with one of the, the worst scoundrels that you find in all of Scripture, Manasseh. The worst possible king that you can imagine. And uh, God said, I'm done with you un uh, unless, unless you change. So they put a hook through his nose ship him off to Babylon, and in Babylon, he wakes up and smells the coffee. The Babylonian coffee, yes. And he says, God, uh, I've been real stupid. If you re rest restore the kingdom and bring me back to Jerusalem, I will change. And this word, Ye'ater, God answered, Appeals, appears in that situation with Manasseh. This is Second uh, Kings 33. God restores him, 
And believe it or not, Manasseh fulfills his bargain with God. So it's, it's a mystery, folks. And we've been talking about prayer the last several weeks because the last thing in the world we want folks to come away with is the notion that you, you put in a dollar in the candy machine and out will come whatever it is that you want. Um, Rabbi David's and my emphasis has been that prayer is not about what we want. Prayer is about what God wants. Now, Ezra prayed that God would give them a safe and, and in Hebrew, a straight path to protect them. And yes, that was what was on the screen for God, but you know what? The biggest issue was not protection for Ezra and the people. The biggest issue was the fact that Ezra and the people had to get to Jerusalem because they had a commission from God, and that commission had to be fulfilled. And folks, so much of the time when we pray, we pay lip service to God being on, on the screen somewhere, but reality is that mostly we say, God, I need X, Y, Z, and I need it today or five minutes ago. And we are totally oblivious to the fact that maybe God has a plan in there somewhere. That maybe the larger picture is not me getting what it is that I want, but me getting what it is that I need in order to carry out what it is that God wants. A, a, a totally radical, radically different perspective. And folks, the Word of God says to us that if we line up with what it is that God wants, we're much more likely to get the answers to the things we ask for. Because that means that we and God are on the same page. Makes sense, doesn't it? And so that is what you see here in Ezra. And yes, they prayed for safety and protection. And they, uh, Ezra asked for God's good hand to be upon them. But the real issue, folks, was that Ezra and the people coming with him were on, on a sacred mission from God to go to Jerusalem and bring the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Torah, and, and to strengthen the, the worship at the temple. Because the temple had been going for a while, but it, it was kind of limping along and uh, needed to have some infusion of resources, infusion of strength and infusion of teaching of the Word of God. So God's answer was not merely for Ezra and his people, but it was first of all for his purposes. And so when, when we think about prayer, what, what often comes to mind is, God, I need help and I need it now. And I don't think I'm speaking merely for myself here. 
You know, God allows us to be in tough spots. Sometimes he actually engineers custom designs that we come into tough spots. Not because he's sadistic, but because he wants to demonstrate to us his sovereignty, his power, and his plans. And all we can see is the fact that we're in a tough spot. We're totally oblivious to the fact that, hey, maybe God is somewhere in the picture. Maybe God has a plan. Maybe he has the power. And maybe I need to settle down and just work with God's plan. Part of the picture, obviously, is us learning to focus on what it is that he has in mind. And say, Lord, um, what do you want? Versus what do I want? It, it seems to me as I was preparing that our congregational mishpacha is also on a journey. No, we are not planning to go to Iraq or to Jerusalem. Um, but God has been growing us and expanding us. His gracious hand has been upon us all along. 30 years, it's become much more obvious lately. And part of the picture is that at some point, he's going to say, okay, I have a building for you. Here it is. This does not imply that we sit on our posteriors and do absolutely nothing. However, our beginning point, like Ezra, was to first of all say, God, what is it that you have in mind? And yes, we have experienced God's gracious hand. Um, we've been here at, at Greenwood since 1994. That's a long time. Um, we pay minimally. And the attitude of our hosts are, has always, has typically been very gracious. They see us not as uh, renters, but as fellow partners in the work of the kingdom of God. Um, and God has been providing for us financially. Um, we have never had campaigns where we've invited some razzmatazz kind of, a, of an individual to come and pump us up. We have purposely avoided doing that ourselves because we believe that the gracious hand of God is upon those who trust Him. Now, folks, that's sometimes is a, a steep learning curve for all of us. And it's been particularly a steep learning curve for me. Just a pers I'll close with this personal story. Uh, before we began Yeshua Tzion with the grants, uh, we were in a church where I did an internship um, 
wonderful, wonderful bunch of people. Very godly, very uh, gifted. In fact, we have continued to have good relationships with a number of them. But a year after we began Yeshua Tzion, that church went belly up. Apparently because of financial reasons, because of being overextended. Um, I don't know all the details. I really didn't make it my business to find out all the details. But you can understand that that's been part of my thinking process. Also, what's been part of my thinking process is the fact that so many folks who come through the door at Yeshua Tzion have had bad experiences in the area of building campaigns. I've heard enough stories to curl the few remaining hair in the back of my neck. I say all that not merely because it's, a, it's an issue of building, but it's an issue of faith. And that's true for all of us as individuals. It's true for all of us together as part of Mishpacha. The things that God has in mind for us have to be fulfilled because it's about God. And our goal, our thoughts, our prayers are not about God, I need such and such and such, but rather God, whatever it is that we need in order to do what it is that you want, we ask for that. Because it has to be, first of all, Him on the front burner and us on the back burner. That's the example that we find today in Ezra's story. Let's take a moment and pray. Avinu Malkeinu, Abba, Father, we uh, thank you for this powerful example in the life of Ezra. In the example, Lord, of how you were faithful to, to him and to the people, just as you're faithful to us. I pray, Lord God, for each one of us to see your gracious hand in our life, to learn to recognize what it is that you do, and Lord God, to view things through the eyes of faith, not merely, Lord God, what we see with our senses. We pray, Lord God, that above all, that you'll give us, give us the zeal, the passion, Lord God, to be in tune with what it is that you want, to be focused on your plans and strategies. And we pray, Lord God, that you would be honored through our lives and through this faith struggle. Give us more faith, we pray. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.